dead. everybody hello 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 we've hijacked your evening <laughs> all right well welcome to tactical brewing as i'm sure you know where you're at uh we are craft beer is dead that us that's us i am brie aka the pint size traveler accompanied by i am chris aka chris face um if you've ever listened to the show we appreciate you coming hey awesome cool one person we're starting strong everyone <laughs> We got all listener. Yeah. Awesome. Uh, no, we've been asked to come out and like tell some scary stories. It's just loud. So, uh, yeah, here we are doing that. We're going to go ahead and intro some, uh, some stories throughout. We went ahead and wrote some stories around some of the releases we did today. So that should be a good time. And then, uh, yeah, we'll go from there with some trivia questions throughout. You got any info on that? On the trivia questions? Yeah. They're about tell spooky us, stuff. No, tell so. us all about, you want to tell us about one of them real quick or like what? All right, do you guys want to start off with a spooky trivia question? If you got it, you got a free beer. Pretty tempting, huh? 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 Free beer, he's got it, yeah. All right, let's begin with, right guys? What famous magician died on Halloween? Ding, 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 ding. Get this woman a beer. All right. (laughs) <laughs> oh that's awesome <laughs> hell yeah well, thanks <laughs> yeah so we uh, started the podcast uh, about two years ago obviously uh we enjoy craft beer and that was just too easy so we started adding some crime murders and uh cult spooky scaries into the mix and uh it's been pretty fun ever since so we're gonna tell you guys some stories do you want to tell them about the beer first? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So uh, today we're launching Ghost Blimp, Zombie Curb Stomp, as well as Night Post. Um, all of them have some pretty fun, cool stories behind those. Um, and we're going to get into those. Uh, but first up, thank you for Tactical for having us out. Uh, and thank you to Sticker Wolf for always hooking us up with some uh, badass slappers. And yeah, help yourselves to them throughout. And we'll just get into it. You cool with that? All right. So. so first story. The mystery of the ghost blimp. The story that actually inspired the ghost blimp. Here we go. Ghost blimp. Early on the morning of Sunday, August 16th, 1942, a U.S. Navy blimp prepared to take off from Treasure Island in San Francisco Bay to search for enemy submarines. The United States has entered World War II only nine months earlier, but Japanese subs had sunk at least half a dozen Allied ships off the American coast. And Japan's frontline combat sub, the I-17, has even shelled one of California's largest oil drilling facilities in February of 1942. This was the first time a country had attacked the U.S. mainland since the British shelled New Orleans in the War of 1812. Now, as a result, the L-8 carried two 325-pound Mark-caliber machine guns as well as 300 pounds of ammunition and giant depth charges. So, the Blimp's mission was simple, to locate and sink any Japanese subs and its crew spotted off the San Francisco Bay. L-8's two-man crew boarded the gondola shortly before takeoff. Lieutenant Ernest DeWitt Cody and Ensign Charles Ellis Adams were both Navy veterans, married and with exemplary service records. Cody, with significantly less experience and 11 years younger than Adams, however, 
He showed strong piloting skills after he had helped steady the L-8 over a battleship, allowing the blimp to lower over 300 pounds of parts and ammo, basically getting in this promotion to be able to do this job. At 6.03, Love 8 lifted off from Treasure Island with Cody at the controls. Winds were light, and they basically had a perfect time being able to fly out and about. The L-8's mission was to patrol within 50-mile radius and try to tag any sort of submarines that they might find within the San Francisco Bay Area. So, at about 7.38, an hour and a half into the patrol, they radioed as about four, or four miles from the Fairlands. Four minutes later, they sent a second message, I'm investigating a suspicious oil slick, stand by. An oil slick could indicate an enemy sub lurking below the waves, so it's not surprising that the LA dropped two Mark IV float lights, basically a smoke-producing flare shaped like an aerial bomb, at 7.42 and began scrutinizing the area. When the Liberty ship Albert Gatton spotted L-8 smoke flares, its crew surrounded with general alarm and manned its guns. Sailors from the nearby fishing trawler, the Daisy Gray, worried that the blimp was about to depth charge, basically pulled all of its nets and got the hell out of there. Now this is where it starts getting weird. In a move that was very common for such a vessel, the L-8 dropped to about 30 feet above the oil slick as though to investigate. Onlookers noticed that after a few minutes, the L-8 dropped ballast and began ascending towards the clouds almost to the point to where it shouldn't be able to go any higher. Another common occurrence was the loss of communication the station, or the station and the pilots had for brief moments in time, but when the station control had yet to receive contact for almost an hour, float planes were deployed to try to locate the L-8. It wasn't until 11.15 that the blimp was, or blimp was finally spotted a mile away from the fort by a lone bystander on the beach. It appeared to have lost some inflation and the motors were silent. Once near the beach, the gondola struck a hillside, dropping a depth charge off of its hull and sent it careening down the hillside. And Fortunately for local residents, it did not deploy. However, the L-8, now 350 pounds lighter, took flight again and began floating away even further. One onlooker noted that at this point, and this is important, that he could see two figures in the actual gondola through some binoculars. Now, it's obviously deflating, so thousands of people are starting to surround the area to watch the now defunct blimp floating recklessly through the Bay of San Francisco. A short time later, Ethel Appleton heard a loud crash on the roof of their house. She instinctively grabbed her eight-year-old daughter and ran outdoors to safety. And upon exiting their house, the two were floored to see a massive blimp had crash-landed into not only their home, but numerous neighbors' houses as well. Rescue crew arrived quickly and immediately set upon cutting through the blimp's shell to free the two officers inside. However, when they finally reached the cabin of the gondola, not a soul could be found. So there's that. Spooky. It could be said a series of unfortunate events could have led to the pilots abandoning ships, but the facts just didn't seem to add up. For one, nothing seemed to be wrong with the vessel. All equipment seemed to be working just fine, and they even had enough fuel for another four hours of flight. There were two, there were two, three out of, or two out of three life jackets missing, which would strike most as unusual, but it was standard protocol for pilots to be wearing their life vest during the duration of the flight. So all in all, there just didn't seem to be any evidence pointing as to why the pilots would be missing. Years later, a group of teens in a van stumbled across, very or, uh, stumbled across something very curious. Two men were found huddled in a cave by their dog. When the group approached the two men, they pleaded not to be taken back, claiming, we would have been able to hide out if it wasn't for you meddling kids. Their dog Scooby barked in excitement. Well, shit. No, I'm just kidding. That's a Scooby-Doo <laughs> episode. They actually were never found again. So yeah, basically, uh, this thing crashes, and nobody's ever found inside of it. No one knows how the fuck they disappeared, where the hell they went, or um, 
why it crashed in the first place. And it's not like you can just remote control these things back then, so it had to have been so. someone in there. Yeah. <laughs> so there's like a lot of random possibilities. So they think that maybe they abandoned the ship, but for no, like they can't figure out why that would happen in the first place. Uh, some possible Japanese stowaways might have like overtaken them while they were flying over the San Francisco Bay. Or the uh, most popular theory is alien abduction. That's definitely yeah? it. You think so? The greys or the reptilians? <laughs> oh, yeah, obviously. Big old eyes, yeah. Basically, they look like blimp eyes. Yeah. But imagine if they took the blimp, stretched it out in their backyard. That'd be a pretty cool cover for a beer garden. That wouldn't suck. <laughs> Catch a lot of rain, though. <laughs> so, yeah, that's the story of the ghost blimp. Relatively short, but and that at least is... that gives us an excuse to give you guys more beer. That's the double New England, right? Yep. Double yep. Hazy IPA, cans available today. Shameless self-plug. There you go. <laughs> All right. Do you guys want another trivia question? All right. Which monster flick was filmed in Silver Springs, Florida? You already got one. You said it. Yes. Get that woman a free beer. I'll get you a free beer. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Tyler is Tyler's not here. Tyler's not getting any of these questions. I'm not calling on him. I'm gonna make a new shirt that just He's says the stinky kid in class. I'm not calling on him. Tyler doesn't <laughs> exist. It's just gonna be a new shirt. Can you make that? Yes, but thank you for bringing the beer, Tyler. What are we sipping on right now? Uh, Tyler was nice enough to bring this barrel age Poppinski with vanilla from Angry Chair. So shout out to that. Thanks, buddy. Hell of a gem. All right. It's aight. All right. It's so aight. I've got one more. This is actually going to be relatively shorter than we thought. So you guys can get back to your uh, lovely drinking abilities. Zombies. You guys have heard of it, right? So, I'm going to tell you. Yeah. It's Shannon without caffeine. <laughs> We've all seen it. All right. So, zombies have been very, very popular in lore for quite some time now. In 1968, George Romero changed the face of cinematic history with Night of the Living Dead. Now, while this wasn't Hollywood's first zombie movie, it did solidify the zombie as an iconic movie monster. Now, while zombies are known as terrifying, flesh-eating ghouls, their origins prove far more sinister and grim. On a hot Haitian day in 1980, a young woman was bartering at a local market. As this was a common occurrence, nothing should have indicated that anything extraordinary should happen here. That was until she was approached by a gentleman who claimed to be her brother. The woman knew her brother well. She had fond memories of him, of them growing up together, working together, going to school together, but one of her strongest memories was when she and her family had buried him 18 years earlier. The man claimed to be Clarivasse Narcissi, but this was impossible. The woman had rushed to his side when he checked into the hospital 18 years before and remained there as he fell into a coma and was also there when they placed the sheet over his face after pronouncing him dead just three days later. She rattled off questions to him, things only her brother would know. He answered every single one without wavering. Her resolve was finally shaken when he called her a nickname, one that only he had ever called her, and the one that only the two of them had known about. This was, in fact, her long-deceased brother, but how? The word zombie was always held, at, or always held a presence in the working-class lore of Haiti. 
The Haitian culture is filled with ritualistic, borderline religious beliefs steeped in mysticism, or mysticism and folklore. I knew I was going to fuck that word up. <laughs> <laughs> Many had heard tales of zombies ensnared by local bakors or witch doctors and left to be soulless or soulless entities residing in a body they no longer control a fate deemed unimaginable so how did we get to a point to where from zombies on tv might actually exist Lavoisier claimed to be a victim of such a fate claimed that a witch doctor had poisoned him captured him post burial and enslaved him to work a sugar plantation for years he had no way to stop him he claimed they had put him under a trance, a spell, if you will, but he somehow escaped the clutches of the Bacor and returned home 18 years later. Excuse me. Oh, man, that barrel stuff is coming up. I like it. If true, this, revolu this is revolutionary, but if not, it's a tall pill to swallow. The story, however, caught the attention of Wade Davis, an anthropologist from America who had heard that there, were, there was basically a lore of a secret potion that could turn your enemies into legitimate zombies, and he vowed to get to the bottom of the tall tale claims. Davis traveled to Haiti and over a series of days had befriended local Bacors. He eventually was given a small amount of zombie dust. I'm sure you guys have all heard of one of those if you're beer fans. Yeah, so here's a little story on that one too. Yeah. He was given a small amount of zombie dust, and if you will, and immediately sent it to be analyzed. Upon receiving the results, however, Davis was furious when he discovered it to be a mix of mostly inert powders, things that should not be able to biologically cause any human any serious harm. He immediately returned to the Bacor, who had given him the elusive powder, and he called the Bacor out in front of all of his peers. He even rubbed some of the zombie dust onto his body in an act of defiance, calling the Bacor's bluff, and the Bacor finally relented. Oh, God, I feel like I'm saying Bacor a million times. <laughs> The Bacor noted that he had not given Davis the real powder, but, and mostly out of distrust, but seeing that he was willing to subject himself to the harsh consequences of administrating it, the Bacor agreed to concoct a batch of the elusive zombie dust. Davis watched as he procured many dried and ground ingredients, things like earthworm, tarantulas, spices, and human bones. Uh, the last having been acquired in a very gruesome manner, they went and actually picked that up out of a graveyard, no big deal. Uh, lastly, some dried pufferfish. This finally piqued the interest of Davis as he had researched the effects of tetrodotoxin? Can you say that? Tetrodotoxin? Yes. All right. Awesome. A neurological poison found in pufferfish. The fish itself is considered a major delicacy in Japan. When prepared correctly, the, the dish can induce a euphoric feeling with body highs for those who eat it. But there are still a handful of people who die every year due to incorrectly prepared fugu or pufferfish. So make a beer out of it. Yeah, I would definitely want to do it. Would you guys drink that? Because I would. That'd be dope. Uh, there's also been many cases of people who fall in between life and death. People who have awakened days later in a stupor or have literally come back to life in the morgue. So that legit happens. So it would seem that Clairvasia's tale was no longer subject to impossibility. Tetrodotoxin poisoning presents itself in many ways. Malaise, parasolysis, synenosis of the lips, a lot of different things that go wrong, but very specific things, and these were all things that uh, Clairvasse basically experienced as he was checked into the hotel. Hmm. Yeah. Um, all symptoms documented by doctors of Clairvasse, or all of these were documented by the doctors. One last terrifying note on this type of poisoning. Victims are almost always completely cognizant for every single stage. Clairvias was completely present while his loved ones grieved next to him as his passing. Remembers feeling the sheet pulled over his face as he was declared dead. Remembers hearing the earth thrown onto his coffin as his family wept. And remembers being exuded by the Bacor, who had forced him into slave labor for years. And if you need any further proof, 
He'll show you the scar on his face he received as he felt the final nail of the coffin scratch his face as he was plunged into total darkness. The end. Damn. Pretty fucking heavy, huh? It's pretty fucking nutty. No, but that's like, it legit happens. Because you think it's more of a, like, unicorns and kind of thing, not stemming from a real place, you know? Yeah, so apparently it was like kind of like a folklore kind of thing they would tell in a lot of Haitian um, slave trades to mm. basically try to scare a lot of the slave labor in or out of killing themselves. And would they tell them that you'll eat people or I don't know where that, that just kind of came into it as I, the walking dead kind of <laughs> came in? <laughs> it was probably uh, uh, coral. All right, so we got to pull up this next story. We're going to take about two minutes to get this figured out. Let's... Discuss amongst yourselves. Dead, 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 dead. All right, everybody, we are back. Hopefully it's slightly louder. Probably not. Is it a little louder? Hey, is it good? It's louder for bit? me. All right, awesome. <laughs> hey! Hell yeah! Sorry for those who couldn't hear the other stories. I promise you they probably weren't that great anyway. You're fine. Uh, this is the backstories on the beers. Backstories the backstories on the beer. We're just trying to sell you stuff. Now we're not. <laughs> we're telling you an actual scary, spooky tale. It's a little long, but as long as you follow us with it, it's going to be a fun one. I promise. And again, thank you so much for coming out and being a part of our first live show. We're figuring out some kinks, and you guys are awesome for allowing us to do that in front of you. <laughs> so, uh, we'll start off with a little bit of trivia real quick. Give out some free beer. We all know that's why you're here, to be honest. Uh, so, what do you got? All right. You ready? All right, what do, what do you got? <laughs> no. All right. What? Which horror movie was shot entirely on a video camera? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> Give this girl her prize. I don't know about you guys, but that movie scared the shit out of me growing up. So I genuinely was convinced that actually happened and I that was, that yeah. was like a real life video recording of it. I was the same way. I was mortified. I was about done with that life. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I guess they're all reenacting Blair Witch. Ew, ow. Oh, wow. <laughs> Who needs a slasher film? Jesus. <laughs> all right, guys. All right, guys, ready? All right, last story of the night. Here we go. Um, it's a relatively long one, but if you follow us on it, I promise it's going to be fun. Uh, here we go. This one is called The Seer of Possibilities. Sometimes, seer or seer, seer, the seer of like, yeah, seer like not a steak. No, not like a seer's. That would be plural of a seer. All right, I'm gonna jump in because I could do this all day. He really can, guys. Shut up. All right, guys. Here we go. The seer of possibilities. Sometimes otherworldly beings find interesting ways to try and contact you. They might use a Ouija board or maybe come to you in a dream, and sometimes they speak through another person. Oh, shit. <laughs> sometimes they come through another person. I was trying to turn the volume up. Hey, 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 hey. All right, so sometimes they come to another person. Blah. They each have their own style and preference that's particular to them. The one who contacted Jack spoke to him through his computer or... I guess you could say the communication was through on-screen text. The first time it happened, Jack had been sitting at his computer playing solitaire. A blinking red light from the router indicated that the internet connection was down again. This was at least a weekly occurrence and Jack was getting used to the spotty internet service. 
As he moved his cards, the game faded into solid black, and a screen and red text appeared. Hi, Jack. I need a favor from you. You're a very special person, and I know you'll help me. I can't ask this of just anyone. I really need your help. Jack paused for a second. The router light was still blinking red. Is this some sort of joke? He couldn't help but wondering. Several moments later, the message continued. Yes, Jack. I know this is weird for you, but I don't want you to worry. This is just a small, easy favor I need. I'll make sure you're rewarded. Now, nearly in a panic, Jack reached around and pulled the internet cable completely from the wall. Still here, Jack. I don't want to waste any more of your time, so I'll get right to what I need. Tomorrow, when you go to work, I need you to move the large potted plant that's next to the elevator on the ground floor. All you have to do, pull it out three inches from the wall. If you do it at 8.17 a.m., nobody else will be in the area. Jack sat there, refusing to respond, still trying to figure out what was happening. The writing continued. Look, Jack, I'm asking you because I know you'll do it. You won't let me down. You're special. We'll talk tomorrow. Jack pulled the power cord from the wall and the computer went blank. Did that really just happen, he thought? Still shaking from the experience, he took a warm shower and got ready for bed, convincing himself that he'd either had some crazy dream or that it was some elaborate joke. But who would play that kind of joke on him? He didn't really have any friends or enemies. He woke up the next morning feeling refreshed. Work would start at 8.30 and Jack was never late. He pulled into the parking lot at 8.10 a.m. Normally, he'd just go right in, but the message had told him to move the plant at 8.17 a.m. Was he really going to do it? Overnight, Jack's fears had turned into curiosity. Let's say he moved the plant. He wouldn't be doing anything wrong or illegal, right? In fact, Jack's mind, the most reasonable course of action was to move the plant. He'd do it. Nothing would happen, and he'd be able to put the whole crazy matter behind him. One minute before 8.17, Jack left his car and walked towards the building. He entered the foyer at the exact time he was supposed to. The message was right. Nobody else was around. Odd, Jack thought. The building was normally busy at this time of morning, but this temporary lull had been accurately predicted. Fine, let's see what happens, Jack muttered to himself. He walked up to the large potted plant, placed firmly between the two elevators in the lobby of the 10-story building. The plant looked like it was fake, a decoration people passed every day without really noticing. It was heavier than Jack realized. He had to put some might into an effort and pull the plant of three inches to his best estimate. He stood back and looked at the plant, then looked around the lobby. People were coming in behind him now, and the lobby started to fill up again. Nobody seemed to notice the plant was in a slightly different location. Nothing seemed different at all. Jack, sk or Jack skipped the next elevator and waited. Waited for something, but nothing happened. Finally, Jack entered the elevator and made it to the seventh floor cubicle. On time, like always. If you ever asked Jack's co-workers to describe him, you'd hear words like polite, quiet, respectful, and competent. And while these words were all accurate, they gave little indication of the truth. The truth that Jack really didn't like most people. That's not to say he disliked them, but just that he had very little interest in getting to know them or being their friend. Save for one, Allie. The girl who sat two cubicles down from him was the only person he wanted to know more about. 
With her big smile, blonde hair, and beautiful figure, Jack was very interested in learning all about her. Despite the lack of success with women in the past, he was actually doing a fair job to getting to know her. Every morning as he passed her cubicle, he'd stop for a chat. The chats were one minute at first, then two minutes, then several minutes, and Jack was surprised that she actually seemed to like him. On this particular morning, their daily conversation lasted only a couple of minutes. As they exchanged their morning greetings and talked about Allie's wild night out, the elevator doors opened up behind them. Out hobbled James Bentley, the boss of both Jack and Allie. James's loud complaining could be heard throughout the office. My damn foot! What happened, James? Came the mumbled queries. It's that damn plant they have in the lobby. I, I ran right into it and twisted my ankle. James, you can barely walk. You need to go to the hospital, came Allie's concerned reply. Can't do it now. I have meetings all day. Too important to cancel. I'll just have to tough it out. Jack, feeling stunned, left Allie's cubicle mid-conversation and sunk down into his chair. It was his fault. He was sure of it. How could he have been so stupid and careless? Still, no use in worrying about now. A twisted ankle would heal and everything would be all right. Upon returning home, Jack went immediately to his computer and turned it on. As soon as the computer booted up, the screen went black and a new message popped up. How was your day, Jack? He sat there, staring at the screen, not knowing how to answer, and the message on the screen continued. Actually, I know how your day was, but never let it be said that I'm not polite. You're wondering what's going on. You want to know why James Bentley had to twist his ankle? Well, Jack, this chain of events is it done playing out. I don't want to tell you too much too soon, but this will all make sense to you in short order. Just go to work tomorrow like you normally do. Don't worry about a thing, Jack. You'll be rewarded. You're special. Talk to you tomorrow. Jack sat back in his chair. What was going on? Who was this sending him messages? Jack's curiosity was fully engaged, and he was almost a bit excited to see what would happen next. The next morning at work started off as any other ordinary day. Jack noticed that the plant had been pushed back fully against the wall, probably by the night cleaning crew. James Bentley showed up shortly after lunch, hobbling into the office on his one good foot. Man, this foot is killing me, Jack said, or Jack could overhear him, but apparently James still had a meeting and he didn't want to miss it. It wasn't around three, till around three o'clock that Jack saw him again. James, who always seemed to prefer Allie over others, came limping up to her cubicle. Allie, you're not doing anything right now, are you? Um, no, nothing that can't wait until tomorrow, I guess. Good, could you uh, please drive me to the doctor? I, I probably should have gone yesterday, but I just couldn't get away. This pain is killing me right now, and I, I don't think I can drive myself. I, I barely made it here in this morning, and I don't think I can even push the gas pedal right now. We can take my car if you want. Yeah, that's fine, James. I don't have a problem taking you. Turning to Jack, she said her goodbye. See you tomorrow, Jackie. She put on her coat and slowly followed Jake. Ugh. Slowly follow James, James, James. We're just waiting for it to pull back up. How's everyone doing? All right. Guys, never get a Mac. Ever. Never, never get a Mac. Ever, ever. Never get a Mac. All right. Whoop, whoop, whoop. All right. I'm just going to kick back. We're going to jump right into it. Like when you rewind a little bit too far back, but you don't want to try to find the exact spots, so you're just going to hear the same thing. Here we go. Maybe. Maybe. We had it. Hey. Uh, yeah, it does, man. You want it? Still want to buy it? Yeah. No, you don't. Is it on school? Hold on. Is it reading 
All right, we good? Hey. All right, cool. Yeah, that's fine, James. I don't have a problem taking you. Turning back to Jack, she said her goodbye. See you tomorrow, Jackie. She put on her coat and slowly followed James as he struggled down the hallway. She gave a half turn and a shrug in Jack's direction with a little smile as she walked away. Jack felt even lonelier than normal when she was gone. It was 10 minutes later that they all heard the crash. It was preceded by the loud horn of an 18-wheeler and screeching brakes. The collision itself was a sickening thud of two large metal objects colliding. Even on the seventh floor, it was loud. The office, or office workers gasped, ran to the windows. Is that James's car? One of them asked. Hard to tell from up here, someone responded. It's so banged up. The horrifying implication of what had just happened came to Jack immediately. No, 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 he thought. This can't be true. Shaking all the way, he ran down the elevator, went to the ground floor along with several others from the office. Some of them were crying. As they joined the growing crowd around the scene of the accident, Jack could hear the far-off sound of sirens. And looking past the gawkers, he could see the 18-wheeler had hit James's car broadside. Its driver had been thrown onto the pavement where he lay motionless. James was sitting in the passenger seat of his car, motionless, but with a surprised look on his bloody face. Jack couldn't tell if he was alive or dead. The driver's side, where Allie was seated, had taken the hit. The space she had been occupying had been compacted a third of its original size. Allie's head was smashed open and her twisted body was broken and battered. The crowd was stunned. Tears, screams, sirens, that was all that Jack could hear. Without going back inside the building, Jack ran to his car and drove home, angry and sad. He made the journey home and to his computer. There the machine sat. He wanted to turn it on but was afraid of what he might find out. Was he really the one responsible for Allie's death? The whole chain of events had started with him, and he knew he was to blame. Jack reached out for the power button and then pulled his hand back. Finally, after several minutes, he found the mental strength to turn it on. The screen flickered and then went black, and the familiar text started appearing on the screen. No, Jack, it's not your fault. I know you're blaming yourself, but all people die eventually, just some sooner than others. Jack stared at the screen. He resisted the urge to throw the monitor to the ground. But after a moment, the writing continued. Jack, I'm going to tell you something, and I really need you to seriously consider everything I'm about to say. You thought you were in love with Allie. The truth is, you just wanted to f*** her. And please excuse my language, but every once in a great while, it's best to be blunt. Jack, she wasn't the one for you. She would have made your life miserable. Yes, you would have eventually found the courage to ask her out, she actually was interested in you. She thought you'd make a good project. Sad, really. For her, not for you. I want you to think back to all the things she told you. Why did her last boyfriend break up with her? Be because she cheated on him, Jack mumbled under his breath. Because she cheated on him, Jack. The same thing would have happened to you. She would have made you happy for about two months and then miserable for the next four years, sneaking around, laughing at you behind your back, spending all your money. Once you finally got rid of her, you would have been so jaded that you never would have dated again. This is true, Jack. I see all future possibilities, the ones that come to pass and the ones that don't. You've seen how she really is, Jack, but you let your lust for her blind you to the truth. Together, you and I have made sure you avoided that path. One more thing, Jack. This isn't done playing out yet. There's more to come. No, you, you killed her, Jack screamed and threw the monitor from the desk. It landed on the floor and sparked out. 
Jack barely got any sleep that night, and the, the next day he wasn't sure, or he wasn't sure he wanted to go to work. But the last words he'd been told had piqued, or piqued his curiosity, and his anger had somewhat subsided. No work was done that day at the office. The company brought in grief counselors. People shared their thoughts. They cried. They hugged. James had actually survived the accident, but was in a coma. The doctors thought he might recover eventually, but nobody was really sure. Late in the afternoon, Jack was approached by Diago Salbara, the head of the division. Diago was blunt and upfront, and he offered James's position to Jack. Technically, it would be a temporary position, but James wouldn't be back anytime soon. Diego promised him that the promotion would be made permanent once enough time had passed. Let's keep this low-key for now, Diego said. I know it might seem quick, but the Lancaster project James was working on can't be stopped. It's too important to the company, and I need somebody in charge of it right away. This can't wait. Stunned, Jack accepted the promotion. He left work with a strange mixture of feelings, not really sure how he felt about anything. On his way home, he stopped at the electronics store and bought a new monitor, made it home and powered up the computer. Once again, the writing came on the screen. Jack, I want to be the first one to congratulate you. I'm proud of what you've accomplished. Jack just stared at the screen. Jack, I have to ask your forgiveness because I haven't introduced myself yet. I'm called the Seer. Like I told you before, I see what will be. I see what can be. It's a very powerful gift I have. But you know what, Jack? For all my power, I still can't do anything, Corporal. I can't predict, I can see, and with enough effort, I can even communicate. But I don't have a body. That's something that was taken from me a long, long time ago. That's why I need you, Jack. I'm an artist of sorts, an artist of human manipulation. You'll be in my paintbrush and my canvas. I want you to work with me, Jack. It's all very simple. Just perform simple tasks for me from time to time. Jack was becoming more and more curious. And Jack, before you give me an answer, I want you to know a couple things. First off, I'll never lie to you. Secondly, I'll never ask you to do anything which, taken by itself, is wrong or illegal. Yes, bad things will result, and sometimes people will die. But they're going to die eventually, anyways. Right, Jack? And the bad will always be balanced out by something good happening to you. Jack winced at this last idea, but he fought the urge to turn the computer off. The seer was right. Everyone would die eventually. Why not let something good come of it? And what about never lying to him? If he'd known at the time that Allie was going to die, he'd have never gone through with the original favor. But, as he thought more and more about it, he realized the seer hadn't lied to him, but had only withheld information. Still, Jack wondered if he could trust the seer. Work with me, Jack. Together we'll make incredible things happen. I'm just asking you to perform little tasks from time to time. Oh, but these little tasks will have great consequences. They're going to be beautiful, Jack. They'll always end with a reward for you. That's the beauty of my art. One single task produces something bad and something good. Oh, one last thing, Jack. I can see you're having trouble with this. If I stopped talking to you right now, it would take you about two weeks to decide to join me. But you know what, Jack? You would join me. That's right. You're going to say yes. So instead of waiting, why don't you just say yes to me now? Let's get started, Jack. And when all this is over, you're going to thank me. I promise. Jack considered what the seer had just said. His initial feeling of revolt was slowly fading. He paused and then for the first time he placed the fingers on the keyboard and responded directly to the seer. 
What do you want me to do next? As years passed, Jack did every favor the seer had asked for him, and as the seer had promised, Jack was rewarded for his actions each time. The rewards often came in unexpected and interesting ways. One of the more memorable experiences for Jack happened about two years after he agreed to help the seer. Jack, I need you to go downtown tomorrow. The seer requested. Enter Garmin's Liquor at exactly 12.37 p.m. A man will ask you a question. The answer you're going to give him is 27. As always, the seer's instructions were simple and direct, yet mysterious. The next day, as requested, Jack entered the store. In front of him, a burly construction worker was at the counter filling out a lottery placelip. Let's see, said the construction worker. My birthday, that's the 15th. My wife's birthday, that's the 24th. And my kids' ages, 2, 10, and 13. Man, this guy remembers birthdays really well. Fuck, I don't remember that very The man scratched his head and looked around, zeroing in on Jack and said, Hey, buddy, I need another number. What do you got for me? Jack smiled. 27. Really? I was, I was thinking about playing 35. But you know what? I like your face. Let's go with 27. And with that, the man completed his slip, paid for his lottery ticket. See you, pal, he said happily, and he patted Jack on the shoulder on the way out the door. Jack tried not to put any more thought into what had just happened to this man. Just let these things play out, Jack. You'll never guess how things end up, so just let yourself be surprised. The seer had advised him. Still, it was impossible not to wonder about these things from time to time. He knew, considering the way the seer worked, there was no way possible that he'd actually help this man. But giving him a losing lottery number, that was too simple for the seer. He couldn't imagine he'd actually given a winning number. So that's how Jack was surprised. Then, two weeks later, he ran into the same man again, this time at the grocery store. Hey, buddy, it's you. I remember you. Check it out, I won. Indeed, the man looked like a million dollars, wearing new clothes, a new gold watch, and a big, goofy smile. The man walked right up to Jack. I didn't ever think I'd see you again, man, but, man, I'm glad you're here. I could have never won without you. Hey, uh, let me, let me buy these groceries for No, 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 no. That's not good enough for you. You're my lucky charm. I always got to treat people right. That's what my mom says. Reaching into his pocket, the, man, or the man removed his checkbook and promptly wrote Jack a check for $10,000. It's the least I can do for my good luck charm. After thanking the man and feeling a bit confused by the whole thing, Jack raced home to his computer. After turning it on, the seer's writing appeared on the screen. Well, Jack, how does it feel to be $10,000 richer? Feels good. But I can't help but wonder, like, we've, we've never helped anyone before. Why are we starting now? Jack asked. That question with a tinge of guilt. He never liked to admit that people were being hurt by his actions, but in this case, his curiosity overwhelmed any latent feelings of guilt. Oh, Jack, we haven't helped anyone. Yes, that man is happy now. He'll have lost every penny within two years. You saw for yourself. He just gives away money. Old friends, lost relatives are all going to come asking him for money. And there will be some very bad investments as well. The stress of losing everything is going to cause his wife to leave him. She'll take the kids too. He'll be alone and broke, a ruined man. Who would have been much better off if he'd never won? You need not feel bad, Jack. It's the man's own stupidity and greed that will do this to him. Jack felt some regret, but the seer's er, rationalizing and focusing on his own reward always put him at peace in the end. Through the years, no two tasks were ever alike. Sometimes the, effect, sometimes the effects of his actions were direct and easy to see. Other times, they chased a chain reaction so complex that he simply could not follow it. Go to the county administrator's building. Park in space number 43 at 4.47 p.m. Came one such request. Jack did so, and two months later, he met Donna. 
with whom he fell in love and ended up marrying. He wouldn't have even known the two events were even related if he hadn't asked the seer about it. Jack, when you parked in that space, you caused the person who would have parked there to park in a different spot. But she bumped the car next to her. She barely made a scratch, but she called her insurance agent anyway, causing him to leave the office late. He missed the train home, and while waiting for the late train, he was mugged and stabbed. He'll never fully recover. The muggers took his credit cards and used them, and Jack, I could keep going with this, but there's another 23 people involved. Sometimes these favors are going to be very complicated, but that's just say your actions ultimately caused Donna to be the exact place for you to meet her. Jack's relationship with the seer grew. Through remaining mostly mysterious, the seer divulged enough information over time to see that Jack could not or get a generalized understanding with the seer's history. From historical references, Jack knew that the seer was thousands of years old. When still alive, the seer had been a powerful fortune teller and an artist who foretold future happenings through paintings. A foolish king who misinterpreted the seer's predictions and lost the battle as a result had the seer executed. Unencumbered by physical senses and existing in a lonesome void, the seer's abilities expanded exponentially. Finally, learning to communicate with the living, the seer began reaching out to those who would respond, including Jack. And of course, the seer knew everything about Jack. In all, it was as much a friendship as one could have with a dead person, and Jack was grateful to the seer too. He had a nice job, a nice house, a beautiful wife, and people respected him. He was happy, which is something he never really felt before the seer had contacted him. Twelve years in total passed, twelve good years for Jack. Task after task was completed, and usually about one a month. Jack, sitting in the office of his large rural house, was contacted by the seer once again. Hi Jack, I have a favor to ask of you. This one's the easiest yet, and you don't even have to get up. Call Ragio's Pizza in exactly two minutes. Let the phone ring three times, then you can hang up. Jack smiled, nice and easy. He no longer wondered about how these tasks would play out. He trusted the seer and simply did as he was told. Jack made the call exactly two minutes later. The quietness of the household was broken 30 minutes later by the ringing of a doorbell. That's odd, Jack thought. Neither he nor Donna were expecting anyone. Jack looked out the peephole and saw a pizza delivery boy. The logo on his cap said, Riago's Pizza. Jack opened the door. Here's your pizza, said the boy as he thrust it into Jack's hand. But I, I didn't order this. Look, I don't give a damn if you ordered it or not, man. Mr. Riago told me to take it here, so that's what I'm doing, the delivery boy argued. And he looked increasingly annoyed and spat in the bushes. Jack looked at the boy in front of him. He looked to be about 17 years old. But the most noticeable thing about him was his size. He was huge. Probably about six feet and a half tall. Very muscular. It's already paid for by credit card. Just take it, man. I'm not driving it back. The boy put his hand out for a tip. Uh, I, don't, I don't have any cash on me, Jack told the truth. Whatever, came the disgusted reply. The boy looked past Jack into the house and then turned and walked away slowly to his car, looking over his shoulder as he walked. Jack closed the door and took the pizza to the living room, where Donna was watching TV. After explaining what had just happened, he excused himself to go to the office, promising he'd return shortly. Donna came back to the pizza and took a piece. Come back, sweetie. This pizza's got all your favorite toppings on it, Donna giggled as she took a bite. Arriving at his computer, the seer's words appeared on the screen. Confused, Jack? Don't be. Your neighbor down the road ordered the pizza. Mr. Aguio told that boy the correct address but a ringing phone made him difficult for him to be heard clearly. Still, 
Give the boy the credit. At least he got the street right. So my reward is a pizza? Jack typed, a little confused. Yes, Jack. Your reward is a pizza and also the chance to spend a little time with your wife. Go down there, share the pizza, enjoy it. When you're done, make love to Donna. That's not one of your tasks. That's just some advice I think you should follow. Oh, by the way, your neighbors who ordered the pizza are arguing right now over the silly fact the pizza didn't arrive. Some of the things people argue over amaze me. They really do. Their fight is over, is going to get very heated. But you don't have to worry about that. Go enjoy your night. Jack followed the Sears' advice, cuddled with Donna as they enjoyed their meal, and they made love on their big, comfortable living room couch. Donna fell asleep on the couch shortly after 11 p.m. Jack lay there awake. This latest favor, it just felt odd. Carefully extracting his forearm from under Donna, Jack left the living room and headed upstairs. Sitting down at the computer, Jack typed, Are you there? Yes, Jack. I'm actually always here. I've been waiting for you to come back. That pizza delivery boy, he's quite a specimen, isn't he? Jack looked quizzically at the screen, and the seer continued. He's a horrible employee. He was hired only three days ago, and already Mr. Agio wants to fire him. But as a physical specimen, he's strong, fast, and very observant. For example, he noticed that you didn't lock your front door after he delivered the pizza. What? Jack said aloud as he started to get up. Sit down, Jack. I need to tell you something important, and locking the door now won't change your situation. Jack slowly took the seat again at the computer, looking behind him as he did so. You see, Jack, it's true that I never lie to you. Everything I've told you has been 100% honest, but yes, I've withheld certain facts. You see, I told you that every task causes something bad to happen to someone else and something good to happen to you. But there's a third thing. There's an ultimate goal that each task has been working toward. Remember Allie? Of course you do. What you probably don't remember about her is that she was helping to pay her brother's way through college. When she died, he had to drop out. He's going to be a great psychologist, but now he works at a factory instead. It's really too bad for our pizza delivery boy. He could have used a good therapist a few years ago. That good therapist wasn't there for him. Instead, he got some Freudian quack. And remember our lottery winner? Yeah, you do. He was a neighbor to your pizza boy. After he lost all of his money, of course, he beat the boy senseless and after the boy jumped into the street in front of his car. Quite a traumatic memory for a young lad. And his mother didn't care about that incident, didn't protect the boy at all. She couldn't, not after using all the drug given to her by her boyfriend who happened to be one of the muggers who robbed that insurance agent. He bought the drugs with the money he made from the robbery. Do you see how the scope of my artistry? Jack sat glaring at the monitor. He wanted to get up to check on Donna, but he was too scared to move. The seer continued. Jack, you've done over a hundred tasks for me, and each one has served an ultimate purpose. To psychologically destroy this boy, turn him into a monster, and to bring him here tonight. Don't you see, Jack? This involved tens of thousands of people and billions of possibilities. If you had failed to complete only one task, the whole chain would have collapsed. This was orchestrated by me and is set in motion by you. Together we've done something wonderful. This is a masterpiece of human manipulation, our masterpiece. And it all begins and ends with you. Two perfect points in time. Tonight, wrong address, no tip. This poor boy finally snapped. He's downstairs right now. 
He's slitting down his throat at this exact moment. Jack could hear a short, muffled scream coming from the living room, followed by a gurgling noise. No! Jack screamed and stood up, staring down the, or starting to run downstairs. Jack, stop! The voice startled Jack. It was inside his head, and for the first time, the seer was talking to him directly. It was a pleasant voice, a feminine voice. You can't do anything. She's already gone. He'll be coming for you shortly, and you can't stop him. But why? Jack cried with tears welling up in his eyes. It's not an artistic masterpiece if it doesn't begin and end with you, Jack. Her voice was soothing. I want you to appreciate the fact that I'm talking to you directly. This requires all of my energy, and as a result, I'll have to rest for several years before I can connect with anyone again. That's how special you are to me. Please don't feel bad about this, Jack. I want you to take a moment, enjoy your accomplishments as much as I do. The voice paused briefly. Do you know what, Jack? What? (laughs) If I'd never contacted you, you have never lived for 85 years, 85 boring, meaningless years, and bitter years, and you died. Nobody would have been at your funeral. I gave you 12 great, meaningful years. You were happy, and together we did something beautiful, something unique. Jack paused for a minute and considered 12 years of happiness and his tears of sorrow mixed with tears of joy. He turned and looked at the computer, while behind him, the massive hulk of a demented delivery boy appeared in the doorway, a bloody knife in his hand, and on the screen, the last words from the seer appeared. Don't you have something to say to me, Jack? Jack wiped his tears and absorbed everything the seer had just told him. As the hulk started stepping closer to him, Jack just said and mouthed the words, Thank you. The end. <laughs> All right. Thank you to the seven people in front who were still paying attention. You guys are awesome. <laughs> All right, everybody. Wait, do we have any more trivia? Do you want to make one up? Yeah, do you guys want one more beer? Yes! <laughs> All right. Somebody's excited. I appreciate that. First person to give an example of a vintage slasher flick. Flick. Vintage slasher flick. Jason, yeah, that'll work. All right. I'm going to come up with a spontaneous one. We did an episode on Ed Gein. Name one thing that was found in his weird box of weirdness that he kept building weird things out of. And what was it made out of? What? Lampshade. I'm giving you beers all day. You got this, man. You're killing it. (laughs) How weird you guys feel screaming skin lampshade right now. (laughs) At least it wasn't a nipple belt. All right, boys and girls. And that is tonight's show. That is all we have for you. Thank you so much for listening. Thank Thank you guys for coming out to Tactical. Make sure you try all the new releases. Every single one of them is pretty dang awesome. Uh, Thank you, Chris. Thanks, Doug, Dork at Tactical. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Uh, guys. Yeah, we'll uh, we'll be back in five minutes for three more hours. (laughs) I'm just kidding. We'll turn music back on. Just kidding. The Seer of Possibilities is credited to user Creepy Thomas O, protected under the Creative Commons license CC by NC. Dead. Dead. Dead.